my my simple answer about decentralized exchanges is is that I think they're a bit of a joke. They're they're a solution to a problem, or they're an attempt at a solution to a problem. You know, namely, a lot of people have chosen to park their capital on on very poorly operated, poorly built exchanges, and they've lost their capital due to very easy cyber attacks and cyber thefts. In some cases, it's as simple as as outrageous as an exchange parking an unencrypted Bitcoin wallet on a web server. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic Podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic. Hey, Kryptonauts, this is Jeff Peterson, and I'm here with my co-host, Alain Leon. What's happening, man? Not much. And today, we are with Marshall Swat. We are sitting in front of a beautiful, almost sunset, looking at the Miami sky. We were just talking about how the sky here in Miami looks so much more interesting than New York. Uh, Marshall is originally from New York, I guess, so he can attest to that. I have no... Yeah, he made that point. Yeah, I have no personal experience with that. The reason we have Marshall on the podcast today is because Marshall Swat is, he's swatting his way, if you will, into the crypto exchange world for a third time. That's right. This is the third exchange he's built. So he has a lot of experience and insight to share with us today. And hopefully we don't come with any more Swat-based puns because I'm sure he's probably really tired of hearing them his whole life. So... With that, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today, Marshall? Good. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for uh, suffering through this. We know it's not the not the necessarily the way you always want to spend a Wednesday night, thus making terrible puns. Yeah, I know, right? Bring, bring on the puns. <laughs> First, I want to backtrack on a little bit of your history. So you built two other exchanges, which is a lot for any one person, and you're now building a third. Can you talk a little bit about those two other exchanges and maybe like give a brief synopsis of them and then move into the story of this one that you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing engineering for over 25 years now, software engineering. And I, I was based in New York City for most of that time, for about 18 years. I did some, you know, a lot of consulting work over those years for some big companies as well as a number of startups. And, uh, was lucky enough to do some consulting work for an institutional foreign currency exchange at Citigroup a number of years ago and was part of the team that built and launched that foreign currency exchange. It's a really great project. It was a wonderful opportunity to learn how financial exchanges are built, how they're run, all the different aspects of, of that kind of a business. I found it, you know, really fascinating. Learned a lot from it. And then just, you know, as luck would have it, it was end of 2012, early 2013, and Bitcoin was becoming really, really popular, really well known. I had people walking up to me from different groups of friends or different networks in New York and saying, hey, have you heard anything about this thing called Bitcoin? You know, What do you think about it? And it made me really stop and think about it's, it's the level of adoption or interest that, that it was getting. And so I, uh, you know, I, I took a lot, a, a longer look into it and realized that you know, this is a fascinating new technology and new new form of financial instrument. And at the time, there was really no other, very few other exchanges. There weren't really many easy ways to acquire Bitcoin or to trade it or to speculate on it, to invest in it. 
I had just been involved in building a really high quality exchange at a major investment bank. And I figured, why not build a quality exchange for this new fledgling currency? That's kind of how I got involved in, in kind of a second exchange venture, which became known as CoinSetter. We launched a cryptocurrency exchange in November of 2013 that allowed people to buy and sell Bitcoin. It was a wonderful, really, really interesting experience to be involved directly in the industry and uh, attend a lot of conferences and meet people that were also in the space and excited about this technology. That was a fun, really fun project and learned a lot from that as well. And after we sold CoinSetter, I, I realized there's still a huge opportunity. There's still a huge need. So why not do it again? Third time is the charm. <laughs> always, always. Now, quick question. CoinSetter comes about from what you said. You were thinking about this new sort of currency that's coming up. Did it have anything to do with what happened with Mt. Gox? Or was that before? Was that because it's right around that time frame? Yeah, sure. I mean, it was, it, no, we started CoinSetter long before Mt. Gox went under. To be, to be honest, to a, a lot of those, those of us who were in the space a while, very intimately, very involved, I, I think it was a foregone conclusion that Mt. Gox was going to go under. You could tell from the numerous frequent recurring problems with their platform and a whole bunch of other peripheral problems that that they were either way in over their heads or didn't really know what they were building, didn't have any background building the kind of thing that they were building or managing it. And uh, it, it just came as absolutely no surprise to me that they would you know, end up suffering a massive hack and loss of, of fun. You know, for us, you know, we, at the time when we, when we started CoinCenter, when I was looking around, I, there were really only a couple exchanges out there. Mom Gox was one of them and uh, Coinbase was another, although they were just a retail operation at the time. It took five to seven days to get you know, any of your crypto tokens if you were to buy them. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I remember that. there wasn't much, there really wasn't much there. And, you know, what I saw at Mom Gox wasn't impressive. So I figured there's, there's definitely a clear opportunity. To, uh, to build something more robust, more, more reliable, and, uh, and also have something here in the U.S. to have a company that's based here in the U.S. rather than on the other side of the world. Yeah, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, uh, in one of his videos, he's, he always used to say that at the time, they had a saying that when friends don't let friends get goxed. Like before it happened, right? Because like they were saying, it, they knew it was going to happen, and and so that was sort of their. Well, you know, I I mean, I would say I think Roger Vera owes the community an apology for going on YouTube and recording a video with Mark Carpel saying that he personally reviewed Mount Gox's financials and saw that everything was okay and there was no problem whatsoever. And <laughs> I think it wasn't a month or two later that you know they went under. And building that kind of this kind of a business is not easy. It's not something that a couple of high schools high school kids can do in their garage. Um, you know, it's, it's almost the equivalent of trying to design a better bazooka and think that you can build military hardware in your garage and, or, you know, or, you know, there's certain kinds of industries where it's a little dangerous to let somebody just play around. I think, you know, medicine, military and, and finance are, are three of those industries where you, you know, there, there needs to be a little bit of a degree of caution applied. Right. People's livelihoods are, it's, well, that and, and you have every single hacker in the universe actively trying to attack you. It's, you know, at least in the medical industry, you know, a doctor doesn't want to make an error, but that's up to him. But he doesn't have 50 other doctors trying to stab him. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. True. So why, why the U.S.? 
Why is that important to you? Well, I, you know, I think this is a fantastic place to base a business. I mean, you've got just a very business-friendly cli- climate. The U.S. Is a, provides a very business-friendly climate globally relative to many other countries, um, in my opinion and in my experience. You know, I, I think it's a very trustworthy jurisdiction. You know, I, I think there are a lot of advantages and uh, to, to operating any kind of a business here, but in particular operating a financial services business where people are going to be parking a lot of their capital and want to be confident that that capital is going to be properly safeguarded or managed or, or, or cared for, you know, for however long it's under our care or, or under our, our authority. You know, to me, this, there's really no better place to build this kind of business and, and have customers feel like, okay, um, we can, there's, there's certain degrees of assurance that we can have just by virtue of the fact that your company is, is where it is. Right. If, like you said, it's one of those three industries we had mentioned earlier where you need some sort of assurance that things are going to be okay. And if things don't go okay, that there's some sort of safety net. If you're in a country where you just get like a black hole of a safety net underneath you, you know, you just, if you fall and there's nothing under you, then. Yeah. Scary. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, also a lot of users, they, they look for a country in a way that has more rule of law. If, if I was to use one word. Um, although I guess this conversation goes back and forth in, in the crypto industry. You know, you have companies obviously moving out of China. Some of them moving into Japan. Now everybody seems, it seems that Malta is the place to go for, for, for some exchanges like Binance. You know, if you open up an exchange in the U.S., there's, there's going to be regulatory overhead, whether you like it or not. And, and that has its plus, pluses and its minuses. One of its pluses is that obviously, you know, it's, it's going to be a legitimate exchange. It's, it's going to be, um, regulated. And, uh, a lot of the, the, the people that come and ask me, um, sometimes when I recommend to them an exchange that something like Binance, they're like, no, 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 I want to stick with something in the U S and I'm like, okay, well, here are your options. Yeah. And I think for us, our, you know, we're interested in serving customer segments that in, in general are going to be much more comfortable with the U.S. business. So not everyone is comfortable sending money to an exchange in Malta or, or Gibraltar or, or Tokyo, you know, even, even though they may be very, you know, stable, good quality um, jurisdictions or options. I don't, I don't really want to rate one country relative to another, but, you know, but that said, I think, you know, I'm, you know, I'm American. I'm, I'm based here. I'm familiar with a lot of our customers. And I know that from my own experience, a lot of our customers would be much happier working with a company that's based here that they can, you know, that, that's it's close to home. Yeah. Um, and look, the irony is this is blockchain technology. This is Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and, and cryptocurrencies. This is an industry that's supposed to be almost like, um, removed from from geography or the ability of a, a nation state to have the ability to exercise control over it. And, and there's an ethos about this kind of technology and industry that's, that's, that is kind of like boldly stepping aside or outside of government and jurisdiction. And, you know, in, in some respects, I think that's really promising and interesting and powerful. And, and in other respects, there's, you know, part of me is very, cautious and concerned about that and I'm, I'm not fully supportive per se of just you know 
advocating and building a technology that, that openly thwarts um, governments and regulators and, and all these things that we as a society have built to provide a quality service or environment to citizens and customers. But, um, but there, you know, that said, I think there are, there are really great aspects of this technology of these cryptocurrencies. And I mean, for me at the end of the day, if, if nothing else, I think we do need society will be better off for, for having cryptocurrencies that are a complement to fiat currencies. And, and I always go back to that personally. I just, I think, you know, fiat has a horrible history of being very deflationary. I think personally, Deflationary or inflationary? Actually, I'm sorry. It has a horrible history of being very inflationary. My my personal opinion is I, I think you know the what we've seen over the last 40 years managing the U.S. dollar and other fiat instruments. You know, they, they've they've been fairly well managed by the reserve banks of the world that, that manage the euro, the dollar, the yen, and the pound, and so forth. You know they're not without their flaws, but relative to other fiat currencies. Of the past, I, I think you know these have been fairly stable, at least in, in among the top eight or so countries. But you know that said, you just never know what could happen. You never know if a government will get desperate or if certain things will take place. And you know, I think Venezuela is a perfect example for for everybody to see. You know, a country that was kind of the king of Latin America economically um, had everything going for it. And now is basically at the bottom of the economic ladder in the world, hyperinflation. You know, so having a cryptocurrency that can't be manipulated by any nation state or government that is inherently deflationary, I think is a wonderful complement and maybe a bit of a restraining mechanism on fiat currencies and inflationary yeah. currencies. So to me, it's fascinating. It reels it, everything in because there's always this marker by which you can bring fiat currency back to the cryptocurrency because there's like a there's like a bar here and then underneath this is the fiat currency but you can always trade back so there's always like a it's almost creating like a safety net of stability yeah a release valve and it, it's not the first time right that major currency like the u.s dollars has had has been inflationary right and i'm not that old but obviously i still remember the not remember but i read about the bulk the volcker era and you know high inflation back then uh late 70s early 80s and what they had to do to raise the interest rates to get it down so there's still a lot of people out there very worried about situation similar to that happening given all the money printing that's been happening since the great recession so relative to other fiat currencies you know us the euro and others have been a lot more stable but cryptocurrencies are here now and they offer something different yeah and then that that, that to me it's, it's just kind of fascinating like we've got gold and we've got silver and, and metals we've got other kinds of products that act as currencies and we've seen products throughout history acting as currencies cattle is one of the well-known original forms of currency and this to me is like a fascinating new kind of currency and That's so much more functionality than gold though you can't yeah, you right. can't do voting with gold. I mean, I guess you could, but why would you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's not as easy. So why yeah. why would you use it when you can use the blockchain? And I mean, to me, that was one of the most exciting things I ever got to participate in is is being part of one of the first examples of blockchain voting to vote for the board of directors of the Bitcoin Foundation several years ago. Oh, I didn't realize they yeah. used blockchain for that. I guess it makes yeah. perfect sense. It, it was. I mean, I haven't seen many 
examples in the wild of uh, blockchain voting systems, but that was the first. We did it. We got to to try it out, and I was I was really it just felt great to be to feel like wow, you know, I'm part of this experiment, this first use case. How many people were part of that vote? Good question. I I would say probably you know below ten thousand, like a few thousand people at most. And so Coinsetter, right? How many exchanges were around? You said it was like just a couple. Like, what exchange number do you think you were in the lineup? Like number ten out of the world, or uh, yeah, something like that, perhaps. I mean, there are probably more depending on. I mean, it, it all depends on how you evaluate, yeah. you know, based on volume or so forth. But, but if you look at in terms of you know any significant or consequential volume, there are probably at most you know a dozen or so. So just for bragging rights, we'll say that Marshall started the. The twelfth ever substantial exchange. No, in the world. we're going to give him bragging rights. We got to put him in the top ten. Okay, <laughs> so the tenth exchange. We'll give you the round of ten. Right. We'll, we'll look just, it up later, and, yeah, and citation we'll needed, but notes, you know, yeah. we'll, we won't look it up. <laughs> we'll just pretend and be blissfully ignorant. So, I want to know more about like things that go into exchange that maybe be interesting for our audience to learn about. So, you build two exchanges. You're about building a third one. What are some of those specific lessons that you learned that you are making this third exchange? Like, how are you making a new impro- improved product? Like, I'm assuming you're not just building the same thing you built before, because otherwise, why do it, right? So, what are you trying to do that is going to differentiate you from other exchanges? What are you doing that's differentiating from what you did before? What makes the SWAT exchange something that's going to swat away? The competition. <laughs> Knew I was going to work that in somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, how is this different than what we did before? You know, I think there's there's a lot of lessons learned that for me are more just maybe classified as life lessons or general business lessons. And and so it's an opportunity to apply those to this new venture and see 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 how that helps us. From in terms of a, a technology perspective, I think it's just about refining what what I've built before and, and, and also being aware of the fact that it's now several years later, the industry is different. So trying to just build what you've already done isn't going to serve the market that exists right now. It's much more advanced. I mean, we, we launched an exchange that had one trade, one currency pair trading over the, over the time that we operated, just one currency pair, Bitcoin dollar. I don't think you could launch an exchange today and just have one currency pair trading. I don't think that would interest anybody. No, I wouldn't. No. You know, pick pick a pair. I just don't think any one pair would be would be exciting to people. So, and that alone is a big is a big difference. You know, there's a lot more overhead for an exchange to support multiple blockchain based instruments. You have to have nodes that connect to those networks. Those nodes have to be very stable. You have to have systems that integrate with those nodes that are pulling off um, in, in, you know, valuable data that are monitoring for deposits and withdrawals that are also extremely secure and stable. So every every new token that your exchange lists is requires operational overhead and technical overhead as well as business overhead because you also want to make sure that that, that instrument has liquidity assigned to it. You've got you know, people providing liquidity for that particular instrument. And, you know, that said, there are ERC-20 tokens. So, you know, maybe every new ERC-20 token that you add on is not necessarily as complicated as adding on a token that represents a brand new blockchain. Um, So there's degrees of of difficulty involved. But, you know, certain things are not much different. I mean, I'm extremely proud of the fact that Coinsider was the first exchange in the world to have a fixed protocol API, you know, financial industry grade standard protocol API that 
Wall Street grade businesses can easily use to connect to and use our and integrate with our exchange. I'm also extremely proud of the fact that we were up and running for three years and we never suffered uh, theft or loss of customer data or theft or loss of capital under our custody. What what percent of exchanges get hacked? Do you think how many how many exchanges today can make that claim that they've been up and running for three years and they've never suffered a breach or a hack? I would be surprised if more than a hand if if I can count. The number on my, on one hand, at least any of the big ones. Yeah, it's the, the unknown few. ones, maybe. But but yeah, if you're trading, I mean, any exchange that's been up and running three years has traded significant volume, and has not suffered a breach or a hack of any kind. Is is there's very few. And you know, why were we lucky? No, not necessarily. Luck has you know something to do with it. But in you know, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money building security and at every level of operation. It was time-consuming, it was costly, it was difficult, it was a pain, it wasn't easy, we didn't like always doing it, especially when we looked to our left and looked at our, to our right and saw our competitors ignoring security, you know, and, and just focusing on getting as many customers as they can to deposit money on their platform and maximizing revenue. It was very frustrating that, you know, we would say to people, we, we are confident that we are the most secure exchange in the world today. And all of our competitors would say the same thing. And yeah. our cus- and customers, how would a customer know? Unless you're a security yeah. expert, you would... Yeah, by the time they would know, it'd be too late. Yeah. And, and if you have really good security, you're not going to tell people what you implemented for your security measures. Otherwise, you give your secrets away to the hackers. So it's like, how are you even supposed to advertise that? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> kind of a catch-22 there. It wasn't easy. I mean, you can't... You can't sell an exchange to consumers by saying that you're the most secure exchange out there. It's, 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 you can't, you can't, there's no way to convey that in a way customers can understand or, or or embrace. So, and and if you're a marketer or just a creative person and you do figure out a way to make that sexy, please email a bit cryptic podcast at gmail.com and uh, we will pass that on to Marshall here. Yeah, let us know. There's a bounty. (laughs) So um, first things first, right? This is a retail exchange. Our focus is actually not on retail customers. So we're we're focused more on serving customers that have, that do not have a retail profile. At least that's our initial, our initial focus. We may grow to, uh, to serve retail customers over time. But, you know, I've, I've been in the industry five years now, and I, I, I know that there are a lot of people who struggle to work with and use a lot of the retail exchanges. You know, for all intents and purposes, the exchanges that are out there in the world right now are all retail. So Retail meaning just for the average person? Retail you know, means that you know, they're designed for somebody who wants to deposit $500 or $2,000 or a few grand and, and invest and trade, right? But if you, want, if you have a, a, a hedge fund and you've got... $50 million in AUM and you've got specific rules and requirements that you need to follow and putting even 10% of that money on an exchange that's a retail exchange is is extremely problematic at best, if not outright impossible. And, you know, I mean, one example is many hedge funds are required to use a qualified custodian. They can't just simply deposit money with whoever they want or whatever business entity they want. So, if your exchange doesn't provide proper custodial services, it's a non-starter for those kinds of customers. But beyond that, I mean, there's just so many other factors for, for people who are non-retail that you know, they, if you're, if, I mean, imagine you've got a million dollars that you want to trade on a given exchange. You know, wouldn't you want to be able to have a dedicated customer service representative or 
the ability to pick up the phone or, you know, get on a live chat room and have an instant interaction with somebody on the other end. I mean, are you really going to risk making a million dollar deposit to a mystery exchange when you've never had the ability to interact with anybody on the other end of that? And what if if like something malfunctions as you're up, you know, sending the money or what if... Yeah. And and if you're Poloniex and you have 160,000 unanswered support tickets, you know, when uh, Circle buys you, you know, I mean... (laughs) I had a couple dozen unanswered customer service tickets with Poloniex for for many for months. So it, you know, if if I was trading a million dollars of other people's money representing a hedge fund, Poloniex would be a problem for me, right? So essentially, you're having creating a, a kind of a concierge type service, like over the counter trading desk that provides a more personal service for people trading large sums of money with the SWAT exchange. Is that well? You right? know, there's there's. I think you can go down the list. There's a whole bunch of um, things that an exchange needs to do properly in order to bro- provide the kind of experience that non-retail customers need. And the, those that I've mentioned are just a couple, but there's quite a long list. I mean, you can look at every corner of the business and and you have to kind of understand how that needs to be structured and designed and built so that non-retail customers can feel comfortable. Uh, using it so that it works for them. And, you know, that's, that's the challenge. Fixed API is, is, as I mentioned earlier, is an example. I mean, if you're, if you're a hedge fund that's involved in the foreign currency markets and the equities markets, and you've got systems that you've already built 20, that are 20 years old, they're legacy systems with legacy API integrations and, and so forth. You know, fix, you know, certain protocols, your systems know and, and understand those protocols. They're not going to understand a WebSocket API or a RESTful JSON API. So, for the non-engineers out there, aka me, out of the three people in this room, <laughs> the non-software engineers, as you say, Fix is a is a language that's used for by financial institutions. Fix is a protocol that was invented in the '90s initially between Fidelity and Merrill Lynch to exchange financial data between the two firms, and it grew and became more of a standard out of their initial efforts. And it's become quite a robust protocol standard. That fix aside, it's not necessarily about fix. It's just about saying, look, there are a lot of companies out there that have that are already well-established financial firms that already have systems and protocols and processes and standards and ways of doing things. And it's much easier if you meet them where they are as opposed to them having to change everything around to use this exchange that is not built for them at all it's yeah. built for so that that's our that's our focus so you're saying a lot of a lot of the the codes that hedge funds have let's say they've they spent a lot of time with with their quant engineers creating all these algorithms that are meant to work for an api or a protocol to me it almost sounds like you're taking that in mind you've taken that in, into sort of when you're creating this exchange by using standard protocols that have been used before that they can come in and sort of get a lot of their code and their algorithms running on this exchange. So they need to liquidate a million or 2 million instead of, you know, spiking up the price, you're doing a market sell, obviously something a beginner would do. They would never do that, but that they have all that code there ready. And with, with little change to it, they'll get it up and running in the SWAT exchange. Yeah. And it's, you know, for us, it's a way of differentiating ourselves in the market and make it, make it easy for these kinds of customers that that for me is a way of I think standing out and and carving out an important niche in this industry and and also helping the broader adoption of blockchain technology and, and the industry too. I mean, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of non-retail 
people out there that would love to be more active and more involved in this space. And, and I know firsthand from talking to them, there's still many people sitting on the sidelines because they're just not they're, they don't feel like they're able to, or they're not comfortable yet, or there's, there's a couple things that haven't been fully flushed out in their minds. And for us, you know, it's like our hope is that we can help take one step forward for the industry and, and engaging these customers and, and helping you know, grow and, and improve the, the rate of adoption. So at least two of the, I don't know if I would say major figures, but definitely popular figures in the crypto industry, Mike Novogratz, Ari David Paul as well. You know, they've been saying, you know, Novogratz in particular, he's been saying the herd is coming, sort of the institutional investors are coming. And lately, given the price downfall in Bitcoin, he's, you know, he keeps saying, you know, the the herd is coming, the institutional investors are coming. But he's saying now that he didn't think it was going to take this long. You know, he thought it was going to happen sooner, quite possibly, may, yeah. maybe even on the back of uh, the retail investors. And, you know, he also made some projections, perhaps he was saying, oh, you know, Bitcoin may go to 40 or 50,000. And it seems like he was almost counting on institutional investors coming in and, and sort of fueling the next wave. But it, they were hesitant, it seems now, you know, it, it, they, they didn't kick in, at least not right now. They're still looking into it, uh, supposedly, according to Mike Novogratz and, you know, folks like uh, Ari, they're still coming. But you're saying that what I hear is that it could be because of these concerns that they're still sort of checking out the space and, and, and deciding when it would be a good time for them to start investing. Yeah, it's going to take time. I, I, institutional investors aren't necessarily going to jump in all at once with both feet. So, and we, we're already seeing examples of that with like, you know, the CME issuing Bitcoin futures or Goldman Sachs talking about setting up a trading desk. To me, those are like, those are easy ways for kind of pre-existing exchanges or big investment banks to kind of dip their toe in the water without, you know, having to get a full operational system in place. I mean, if you're just issuing Bitcoin or creating Bitcoin futures that settle in cash, you don't really need any Bitcoin infrastructure in place to really manage that, right? You don't have to settle any contracts on the blockchain. You don't need to hold cryptocurrency to settle even the futures contracts when they expire. So that to me is just was very obvious that like a big exchange like the CME or the CBOE would, would kind of get started by doing something like that. Well, let's build a derivative instrument. Let's create something that's cash settled. Easy, done. And then likewise with an investment bank, I mean, the easiest thing you can do is just set up a trading desk and just provide OTC trading support. It's minimal operational overhead relative to building a full-blown exchange or some kind of automated electronic system. And and so I, you know, I think we'll, we'll continue seeing things like that. And, and certain groups of investors might start to get more active and others will wait on the sidelines. It'll probably take five to 10 years before we can look back and say, wow, you know, now pretty much everybody is involved in one way or another. And it, you, I mean, look, back in 2013, we created CoinCenter with the vision to be like an institutional grade exchange that was going to serve Wall Street and big financial firms. And we were definitely four years too early. We thought they were going to come even back in 2013, and they, they, they didn't. Maybe there were just one or two firms um, coming in, you know, participating in the space back then. And I mean, I think, you know, Mike Novogratz is right. I think his vision is there. I think we're going to get there. But I think, you know, in many cases, we've all assumed that, would, that it would happen faster than it, than it has turned out to, to happen. And I still think we're, we're a ways away from 
I, I just don't see the PENCOs of the world yeah, entering the yeah. space anytime soon. So even when I talk about institutional investment in quotes, I'm talking about the low end, the low, the small side of institution, you know, maybe a small broker dealer. Yeah, a small broker dealer, a small quantitative hedge fund, a smaller operation. But I, I don't see a sovereign wealth fund necessarily getting in, in this space in any significant way right now. I, I just don't think it's possible. Hopefully firms like ours will, will help make that easier for them. So you're, you, you do have that vision, sort of perhaps maybe being ready for that when it comes I mean, I think we're we're part of that vision, yeah. So, so bragging right number one, he was tenth exchange ever in crypto. <laughs> bragging right number two, he's going to be the reason that institutional investors pour into crypto. Yeah. It'll be the the node at which those those institutions come in and feed money into the into the blockchain space. We'll we'll call him the whale whisperer. The whale whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now. <laughs> Right, so that's where this vision that that you have now for for this exchange, we've talked about it. But can we talk a little bit more broadly where you see perhaps the industry going with regards to exchanges? Maybe there's a lot of talk of decentralized exchanges. Can you talk a little bit about that with regards to to the vision that you're trying to accomplish right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, my, my simple answer about decentralized exchanges is, is that I think they're a bit of a joke. Burn. <laughs> they're, they're a solution to a problem or they're an attempt at a solution to a problem. You know, namely, a lot of people have chosen to park their capital on, on very poorly uh, operated, poorly built exchanges, and they've lost their capital due to very easy cyber attacks and cyber thefts. In some cases, it's as simple as, as outrageous as an exchange parking an unencrypted Bitcoin wallet on a web server. And it's a shame. And customers have every right to be extremely upset at those businesses as well as at the loss of their capital. But it doesn't really justify this concept of a decentralized exchange solving the problem. And I mean, look, the reality is we, we can't change the laws of physics as far as I know. And if it takes a minimum of 30 milliseconds in air for light to cross the Atlantic Ocean, I don't see how even two nodes on either side of the Atlantic are going to provide a low latency platform that will attract enough liquidity to compete with any centralized exchange. I mean, it's end of story. There's just no debating that. There's no arguing it. There's no, there's no technical way around it. You know, it's just, it's a non-starter. So could you explain for the people who aren't as well-versed in the technical aspect of what you just said, why does that happen? Why is there a latency? Well, you know, so we're in the 21st century right now and exchanges, you know, their business model is to provide a place where buyers and sellers can come together in order to trade and facilitate transactions of you know, large and small volumes, large quantities, small quantities, you name it. The, the nature of exchanges in the 21st century is that they are aggregators of liquidity. They attract liquidity. They bring liquidity together so that if you want to trade $1,000 of something or $50 million, you can. What's peculiar about exchanges today is that any exchange that is, that achieves high, high, a significant, any exchange that exists today that has deep liquidity has to be low latency. 
and not just low latency, they have to be ultra low latency because a significant amount of the liquidity on any exchange in the world today is, is delivered algorithmically. It's delivered quantitatively through ultra low latency algorithmic systems for market making and trading. And if you cannot provide an ultra low latency endpoint for the kinds of businesses that provide that liquidity, you will never have liquidity yourself. So that to me is just a fundamental non-starter for decentralized exchanges. Now, look, can they get to trading? Can they, can they facilitate trading a few million dollars a day or 10 million or 20 million or whatever? They can, you know, they, they can certainly get to some nominal amount of volume on a given day, but they are just never going to be at the volume of a, of a centralized exchange. I just don't, I don't see it. So that and um, perhaps um, so you're saying particularly for the the customer that you're that you're catering to in a sense they're very aware of of that situation they they essentially cannot have the latency so you might see perhaps decentralized exchanges being used a lot by retail um, folks you know they want to put a, a sell order of you know five ten thousand dollars of Bitcoin and so on and so forth. And they'll put a limit order at whatever price they want to sell it and they just leave it there. But for particularly for folks, for anybody doing any type of uh, quant analysis or trading or trading out algorithmically, you really don't see them perhaps ever really using a decentralized exchange because you just don't see how that latency can ever be brought down and, and compete. If, if you're a retail investor, you also, I think, are going to be price sensitive. You're going to want to get the best price you can for your money. So if you want to buy Bitcoin and you've got dollars or you want to buy Ether and you have Bitcoin, you, you, you know, you're going to want to look around and see which exchanges offer the best price. I mean, there's just no question that the exchanges with the most liquidity are going to provide the best price. So again, a decentralized exchange is just going to fail because it's not going to be able to provide the best price because it doesn't have the most liquidity or it doesn't have the deepest liquidity relative to a centralized exchange. So, you know, if a customer is willing to pay a higher price to use a decentralized exchange because philosophically they think they're better or they prefer them, that's that's a decision customers are, are welcome to make. And I, I think some people will make that choice, which is great. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with diversity in the marketplace and competition and so forth. But if you're price sensitive, I think you're going to go to a centralized exchange the end of the day so we're almost out of time but before we go i want to ask is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to let the audience know wow that's a hard one i mean this this industry has grown and changed and expanded so much in, in the time that i've been part of it it's um it's incredible like i can't keep up with what's going on you know i I spend so much of my time just focused on growing this little business that i i miss all kinds of technology developments and engineering developments and protocol developments and new platforms and new tokens and, and I can't keep up with a lot of the even many of the basic business news that's, that comes across the news wires um, it, it's just incredible how much this industry has, has grown um, in the last few years um, and I'm, I think it's still it's going to be like that. It's going to continue to grow for the next 10 years at, a, at an incredible pace. In a way, I, I call myself a bit of an agnostic. I, I don't necessarily favor Bitcoin over other cryptocurrencies or other tokens. I think I definitely see a world where many of these, where there, where there will be more than one cryptocurrency, where there will be more than one blockchain, where there will be many 
numerous security tokens and utility tokens out there. And I think we're going to see a lot of bricks and mortar businesses migrate to using utility tokens and security tokens and blockchain platforms because there's just such a clear value in, in leveraging this technology for their customers and for their businesses. Um, you know, I mean, Air Miles reward programs, we're all, many people are familiar with those. Well, there's, I think, an interesting case to be made that they could be migrated to some kind of a utility token that is easily traded or, or valued on, on a blockchain network. JetBlue coin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many other cases of rewards programs are there or gift cards or things that we know from the conventional world, uh, the pre-Bitcoin world that I think have really interesting use cases if you just simply take this pre-existing thing and, and experiment by building the Bitcoin version of it or the blockchain version of it or the token version of it. Can you imagine airline miles with governance? <laughs> but if people pull together, they get a free vacation. <laughs> so I, I, to me, like, you know, that all of that is very fascinating. Like, and you know, the other thing is we don't have a killer consumer app yet in this entire industry in the eight years or so that Bitcoin has been around with all these thousands of tokens and hundreds, if not thousands of cryptocurrencies and hundreds of blockchains, we have yet to, no one has yet to invent the killer consumer app for this industry. You know, I mean, look, the day that you're, that a child or a grandparent can do a Bitcoin transaction or a, or a cryptocurrency transaction is, is the day that this becomes more consumer friendly. Um, you know, maybe it, 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 you can, you know, when you can use an email address to send or receive instrument tokens or whatever, that's, that's when it'll be very easy and consumer friendly. But, you know, if people still have to copy and paste the hash, a 42 character hash or whatever, it's, you know, <laughs> we're, we're a long ways away from mass market adoption. So I think that's the other thing that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of eager to see, looking for, thinking about, Wondering about, you know, I, I, I admit we're not there. We're probably not even close. It would be as simple as a username and password and still secure somehow. You know? Yeah, they're working on it. It's coming. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marshall, for coming on the podcast. I know we talked about this for a few months now and we finally managed to pin you down. So I'm yeah. happy you got to pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This is great. Yeah, this is fun. I feel like there's so much more we could have talked about. You know, there's there's all you obviously have a huge depth of knowledge, and, and I would have loved to keep digging further, especially from some of the financial background that I, I wasn't quite as uh, up to date on as you two might be. You're the you're the financial experts here in the table. So anyway, yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. See you all next time. Oh, <laughs> and uh, oh, I forgot to add. Where can people find you, Marshall? SWAT.com with two T's or at Marshall SWAT on Twitter. Those are two, two of the best ways, I think, for now. Okay. And we'll link those up in the show notes. So signing off for real now. <laughs> Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor in chief, Dang Du. Show production and editing is done by the miracle maker, Joanna Marie Nicholas. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening. And remember, keep it cryptic.